All right, welcome back. For those of you at home that are watching online, welcome back. We're glad to have you be a part of our worship together. We're involved in a series on the book of John, and I know it's been a long time, and it's going to be an even longer time, so just get used to it. Um, We've been talking about the whole idea of who is Jesus, especially this week. Um, Last week and this week, we're looking at John chapter 7, and and. Just like we did, if you remember, in John chapter 6, when Jesus taught, where there were questions or comments from the crowd, and then he would speak, and there were comments from the crowd, and then he would speak. And uh, he's doing the same thing now as he teaches in Jerusalem. He's kind of taking off of what they're saying. Sometimes he reads into what they're saying and goes in a direction they're totally not expecting, but it is just simply you can break it down into a series of responses or murmuring or questions from the crowd, and then Jesus's response. So last, not last week, week before last, I was gone last week. I totally forgot about that. Uh, Week before last, what we looked at was the first thing they said in John chapter 7 is they said, by whose authority are you saying these things? Now, let's kind of, we're going to set the scene and then go into it a little deeper. We talk about this a lot of setting the scene. What is the setting? What's going on? Jesus is at one of the seven feasts. He's at one of the largest of the seven feasts, the Feast of Tabernacle, or it's called the Feast of Booths. Uh, in Hebrew, it's Sukkot. And uh, it is a huge feast that lasts for seven days. It comes in the fall after the, just after the, the harvest has been, you know, brought in. So people are thankful. People are excited. They're looking forward to a, t- a break from the farming and the work of, of harvesting. They have plenty of food and uh, and they have plenty of wine. And so God set up this feast for them. They come to Jerusalem if they can, and they build little dwellings out of leaves. Uh, leaves, that sounds wrong. Huge branches, I guess, would be a better idea. Big branches that could actually make a dwelling. And, and they stay there. This is Hebrew camping. That's what this is. And we talked a little bit about camping and what I think are some of the fatal flaws of camping. But I mean, it's true, right? Basically, you go camping, and it's very difficult, and then afterwards, everybody has wonderful memories, right? They love in retrospect. That's what happens a lot with camping. So the harvest is in. People are happy. They're thankful. God commands them to have a festival, to have a feast. And so that's what's happening. Jerusalem is swamped. Jerusalem at that time, they think maybe was 50,000 people. It would swell to 150,000, maybe 200,000 people during one of these great feasts oftentimes. It would just be packed with people celebrating. And uh, so it's this incredible celebratory atmosphere that's going on. People are happy. They're thankful. They're excited. And Jesus starts teaching. He gets there in the middle of the week. The temple. He goes up into the temple, and uh, he begins to teach. And and there's all these people there, and they start listening. And he's he's teaching them, and he's living. I, I mentioned this before. I, I think this is so important for us to understand. He's teaching and living with eternity in mind. He's not teaching for right here, right now. Teaching with eternity in mind, and so he's looking forward. He knows that a lot what he says, they will not understand. But he teaches knowing that at some point they will begin to understand. This could get interesting, couldn't it? Yes. He's doing what's... Now, here's, here's, here's what hits us in our culture. He's doing what is best, not what is just convenient or comfortable. He's doing what's best. And he even in that little passage, he, wears, he, he warns them. He says, beware of people who are seeking personal glory. Everything they do, everything they say, it's all of them. And that is a warning we should take heed of today. Beware of people who are in it for personal glory because it becomes all about them. And that is his way also of warning them about the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law that they are struggling with. So that was the first thing. By whose authority are you saying these things? The second thing we looked at two weeks ago was, you are crazy. You're out of your mind. You're demon-possessed. You're insane. And Jesus teaches them. He, he tells them, he says, you, you're living by rules, and you don't care about people. You've set up these laws, and they've become the focus. All right. 
So he, he says, you're living by these laws. You set up all these rules. You don't care about people. I healed a man, and you got upset because it was on the wrong day in your way of thinking. And he's saying this, saying this is a perfect example of what I was just talking about, people who are in it for personal glory. And so now we get to where we are today. And I want to read the passage, and then we'll start digging into it. It's a long passage, 25 to 43 in John chapter 7. If you have your Bible, you can go there and look it up. Have it on your, on your smartphone. You can look it up. And I will read it out loud. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own authority but he who sent me is true or the truth. You do not know him, but I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many of the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and then teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah be from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So now we get to this third point I'm making here. They're saying in uh, in verse 25, they're saying, "But, but we know you. We know you. You're you're just too human. You're too ordinary. We We know the house you live in. We know your brothers and your sisters. You're too human. You're just too ordinary for us. In verse 25, at that point, some of the people of the temple began to ask, isn't this man, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. So, Some know, uh, before some people were saying, who's trying to kill you? Now there's some other people who are saying, yeah, they're trying to kill him. We know about this. This is something we've seen. The Pharisees are doing this. And they're amazed that he's still being allowed to teach. And so they're asking, could he be approved by them? That's why they're letting him teach? Could he be the Messiah? But their big problem is they know him. He's become ordinary. He's just like a regular, he looks like a regular person, just like them. They know where he's from. They can tell, even if they don't know him very well, they do know where he's from because he lives in the Galilee. So he's got that. We talked about that before. He's got a Galilean accent that just stands out because it was considered kind of backwards, kind of hickish, kind of of untaught type of an accent. And also there was a belief back then. It wasn't a scriptural belief. It was just kind of a, uh, like a, a myth or a wives' tale that had grown up, that the, the, the Messiah would appear suddenly and no one would know where he'd come from. There'd be no family that, to be able to trace, trace him back to. He'd have no mother. He'd have no father. And Jesus doesn't fit this idea. It's not a biblical idea. It's just something people believed. Not everyone, but some. And Jesus doesn't fit this idea because he's not a Pharisee. He's not a priest. He's not a political leader. He's not someone they would consider important. He's a nobody. And people are like, you're too ordinary. 
they were ruling him out mainly because of a cultural belief, mainly because something that has sprung up in their culture, mainly because they associated Galileans with untaught people. And this was a cultural thing, not a biblical thing. The church struggles with this to this day. Christians can struggle with this to this day. We can make assumptions on cultural things. And our problem is sometimes we slide cultural things over and we think they're biblical. I can remember years ago in in grad school, we were studying the history of missions. And one of the things that was such a such a difficult thing that 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 uh, European and American missionaries did is they traveled to other countries and they told people, if you really want to be a Christian and live for God, you should start dressing like we do. And so you see this crazy idea of, of churches, even back in the 1800s, churches in Asia or Africa, where everybody was wearing coats and ties, something they had never worn before in their life. It doesn't fit their culture. And what happened was Christian, Christian missionaries thought that this was biblical. This is how Christians dress, and it's not. Just in case you're wondering. Oh, wait, you're here. You will not be wondering about that, right? Because <laughs> it's like, you can wear a coat and tie if you want to, but it's just, it's not, it's not essential. It's not required, and we don't generally. So we have to be careful to separate the two because this is what Christians can fall into. In our culture right now, this is becoming very dangerous. We have things arising like Christian nationalism, things that think things are Christian that actually are just more like political or cultural. We have to be very careful to separate the two. God had told Israel, you are to be the light to all the nations. And they lost sight of that. They became inward and insular. They became distrustful of people who are not like them. To enter into their society, especially to, to enter into Judaism, you had to become exactly like them. They became indifferent to others. They became indifferent to their needs and their hurts. They became indifferent to their lostness. It didn't bother them. And that is a plague that is afflicting Christians to this day. It is so easy to become indifferent to the pain and the suffering and the lostness not just to people around us, but of people all over the world, people who are created in the image of God. Because remember, the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. Just to not care. That's the most horrific thing you can do to another human being. In years of working with and, and being involved in the lives of, of, of teenagers and, and involved in discipline, involved in encouragement, involved in all the other aspects of that, one of the things that you see, and teachers see this all the time, negative attention is better than no attention at all. And sometimes kids, sometimes adults will do things that cause negative feedback, but at least they're noticed. And they became indifferent. They started not seeing people. They just didn't even see them. We have a number of biblical examples of that. The rich man and Lazarus who sat at his gate. And after a while, that rich man, Lazarus, became a part of the scenery. You know, I, uh, we, we see oftentimes people, you know, around here. This is just an example. From my life, we see people who panhandle. And, and I think it's a dangerous thing to just hand people money because you, you really don't know where that's going. It's better to serve them in other ways, give them goods and services and housing and different things like that. But then what happens, right? Coming out of the, out of the, the uh, Walmart on Work Boulevard, there's always someone there. By, and, and so you tend to not want to look at them. You just want to ignore them. And, and I realized... When God just really convicted me of that a number of years ago because he said, what are you doing? You are, that person now is part of the scenery to you. You know, you go by a few times, you go, wait, is that the same person that was there last week or is that a different person? Did something happen to the person who was there? What happens? They become part of the scenery because you don't look at them. Why? Because it's hard to look at them. It's hard to make eye contact. And so I've tried to discipline myself. Every time there's someone who's panhandling at a street corner, I make eye contact. 
I recognize this is a human being. I smile. I try to think of ways. How can I help this person? What are ways that I can be involved in this community? And I, I forgot to do announcements. One of the ways is we have a Thrive food drive going on in our foyer. There's a list. This is not, I did not do it this way just to be, oh, what a great segue. No, <laughs> I forgot to do the announcements. Um, the, uh, there's a red barrel there, and there's a list of things that Thrive needs. I love this organization. Mostly Christians work there. They're very, they're very Christ-oriented. And, and I love it because what they do is they meet people's needs. Somebody comes asking for money, they've got to go through counseling, financial counseling, before they'll give them money. People come for food, they give out food. They give out thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of meals a year. And we're involved with that. We support them financially and we support them with food. So just as you're walking out, if you're thinking, how can I help these people? How can I help these people? It's right there in the lobby. It's a red barrel. And there's a list of food they need as they meet needs in the community. And you can do it in a very tangible way. But I don't want to become indifferent to the man or the woman who's at a street corner begging. I don't want to become indifferent. I might not give them cash, but I don't want them to become part of the scenery. And this is what had happened for the Jews. God had given them this very specific plan. You're to be a light to all the nations, to the whole world. And they lost sight of that plan. And they became inward. And they thought only of themselves. And they thought only how this affects us, our people, which is why with Jesus, we've talked about this so many times with Jesus, they were looking for a conqueror. They were looking for a general. They were looking for a king who would free them from the slavery of the Romans, create them into being what they looked back and saw when it was David and was Solomon, a world power. That's how they thought it was going to happen. They were going to subjugate people and influence them. They totally missed it. They became inward focused. It was all about them. And so Jesus begins hitting them right where they're at. And we have the same calling, and we can make the same mistakes. We don't want to do that. We have to be rigorous in understanding the difference between cultural ideas and biblical ideas. And this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the coolest things about the gospel is that it works in all societies. It's not some template that you come and you force onto people. It involves a change of heart, a new creation, not through conformity to certain standards. And Jesus shows that they they have to understand who the originator of this message is. That will be key to understanding who he is. Verse 28, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple, cried out, yes, you know me. And you know where I'm from. It's almost, uh, you could actually say it, oh, you know me, big deal. That's no great thing. He says, I'm not here on my own authority. I didn't appoint myself to this, he says, but he who sent me is true. You did not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So he cried out. The, the Greek word there is karadzo, which is one of those onomatopoeias. The word sounds like what the meaning of the word is. It means to yell very forcefully to get people's attention, right? If, if, uh, if you have a little kid and uh, that kid starts running for the street and you're not sure if you can get there in time, what do you do? You scream at that child to get their attention. And this is a word that's often translated to scream, So when Jesus cries out, it's very loud, it's to get their attention, and it's the voice of authority. He speaks, they've already said that, this man speaks with authority. It's the voice of authority. And he just says, you know me, you know where I'm from, (laughs) you know, big deal, right? I'm not here on my own authority, I didn't work this up on my own, I didn't start a Kickstarter, help me preach to all of Israel, you know, and give me money, go fund me. He says, he who sent me is true, you don't know him. But I know him because I'm from him, and he sent me. Jesus responds to the idea that they know him, so it disqualifies him, and he just says this. He says, I'm not the author of this message. I was sent with a message. The one who sent me is the true one. This word true is a very powerful word, saying the one who is the truth, the one who is truthful, the one who is true in his innermost being. He sent me, all right? So don't have any doubt about whether my message is right or wrong. 
because the one who is true gave me this message. And then he hits him. You don't know him, but I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. The Jews thought, oh, Jesus kind of came up with this message. He started, decided to teach it himself, and he's telling them, no, that's not, how, that's not how it goes. The Father sent him, and he says, I want you to understand the root here. Jesus is saying, I know him because I've seen him. The root word there, when it says, I know him, see. The root of it is, it has this idea of see, man, I really lost it. Okay, here we go. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Right. Here we go. Um, the root of it is to see. So when it know, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I've seen him. That's how I know him. The one who sent me, I tell you I know him because we've been face to face. We've talked. We've laughed. We've, you know, it, we've, we've laughed. We've cried. We've loved. We're, we're, we're intimately associated with each other. I know him. And then he just lays on. He says, you don't. Which cut to the core for them. Because they're saying, we're the Jews, right? We're the chosen ones. We're the ones that God chose. We're special. And he's saying, you don't know him. You've missed the whole point. You've missed the whole point. You don't see him, and you don't know him. And they thought, we're the favored ones. We're the special ones. We're the ones that God loves. And he's like, no, no, you've missed it. See, that's why John, there's verses like John 3.16 that strike at the heart of this. For God so loved the world. And the Jews really thought, no, he only loves us. He only loves us. And he, Jesus contradicts this over and over and over. If you start thinking of it that way, you'll see it throughout Scripture when he starts talking about the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost two sons, actually. What is he saying? God loves all people. He loves everyone. See, the rabbis had a saying. I've referred to this, but the rabbis had a saying in those days. There is joy before God when, one, when those who disobey him perish from the world. What are they saying? Heaven rejoices when a sinner dies. Now, think of the parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost sheep. What did he say there? What did Jesus say? He said, there is rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents. He turns it totally around. They really thought this was true. They believed this. And Jesus was saying, you don't know him. Obviously, they don't know him. Because that's exactly the opposite of how God is. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave. There is rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents, when someone repents. They totally missed it. They totally missed it. And Jesus hits them right where where they believe. I've come with this message and you won't listen to me. And it's God speaking to you. And this angers them. Because it threatens, the, it threatens the status quo, right? Especially for the leaders who claim to be the righteous ones, who claim to know God better than everyone else. The Pharisees had this position, the priests, especially the chief priests and scribes and, and, and the, uh, those who ran the temple, they had this position. They were the elite. They were the most righteous ones. They were the ones who deserved to be rich because God loved them more because they obeyed him more. And Jesus cuts them at the knees He's an, he's an equal opportunity offender, right? He hits everybody. And he just tells them, you don't know him. Now, you have to think. You have to put yourself in. Imagine a person who, who all their life they've been told, you're the most righteous person around. And Jesus goes, no, you don't know him either. Kind of like this guy over here who's a, who's, a, who's a tax collector. He's a traitor. Well, he doesn't know him either, just like you don't know him but he believes me now. And so now he's righteous and you're not righteous. You see that it's throughout scripture. It's throughout the gospels. So by whose authority are you saying these things? You're crazy. We, could, we know you. And then the fourth one is, could he be the Messiah? Verse 30, at this, 
They tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? So Jesus is talking about, here he's, he's, he's been talking, he's, he's attacked the leaders, and uh, they don't know exactly how to respond, and things are getting out of control because now there's all this murmuring. And think about it, if, you're, if your whole position in society is resting upon everyone believing that you are the elite, and someone else comes who says, I may be above, they think he may be above the elite, your position is threatened. So they hear all these people murmuring about Jesus, and they say, we got to do something about this guy we got to do something about this guy. When the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him, then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent the temple guards to arrest him. Why? Because he's got to be stopped. If he is the Messiah, then this means everything's going to get turned upside down. There's going to be a revolution. And then the Romans react, and then we got a huge problem. Let me show you a picture of the temple. This is where Jesus is teaching. Uh, It's hard to see scale-wise, but but tens of thousands of people could be inside those four walls. But if you look in the upper right-hand corner, just outside the walls, you see four towers. That's the Fortress Antonia. And, and that was a fortress built by the Romans because they knew whenever we have problems with the Jews, it starts in the temple. And so there are two to 3,000 soldiers stationed in that fortress. And this has happened before. Some guy came to the temple, started preaching revolution. The soldiers took notice. They all marched out. They sealed the exits, and then they just waded in and killed everyone. They, they, said, they said the blood was like five, six inches deep in the, in the temple from all the people who had just been slaughtered because there were tens of thousands of people, and they just waded in. That's how the Romans deal with it. And so for the chief priests and the scribes, they're like, this is going to be a disaster. This man is so dangerous. He's dangerous to us. He's dangerous to the people. We need to do God's will and kill him. And that's what they're thinking. They're protecting their interests, and a revolution would overthrow that for sure. Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for him, but you will not find me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. Where, I'm, where I am, you cannot come. He's talking about his death. He's talking about his burial. He's talking about his ascension into heaven. He's saying, you don't understand what's coming. You won't be able to. It's interesting, you know, as I mentioned before, the goal of teaching is to make things understandable to your hearers. Sometimes on Sunday mornings I get here and I just pray. I have this out and I just pray, God, I don't want to offend anyone unnecessarily. Show me if I am. And I say, God, I want this to be as clear as possible. Show me if it's not. I know sometimes it's not always as clear as I'd like it to be. But I'm praying that. Why? Because I want want people to understand. I've been studying this. I think it's pretty cool stuff. I'm very excited about what God is doing, what God can do in our lives. And I want to communicate that to you in a way that you would understand. But here, Jesus knows they're not going to understand what he's saying. And he says, but i got to teach this. I've got to teach this. So he says, there's going to come a day. You'll look for me. You'll find me. I'll be gone. And where I went, you can't come. And so he, he taught knowing that people would not accept it at first, but that it would soon ring true to them later. Later, it would ring true to them. And he's teaching them about the enormous cost of his mission on this earth what God sent him to do, to teach and to die. And he's teaching them this. He's letting them know this. And so the, uh, the Jews, number five, their, their point is, what is, he, what is he talking about? What do they say? Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Where will he go? Where will, will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks? They're thinking, oh, is he going to go out? out into Alexandria, down into into Italy, to Rome. Is he going to teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? They don't understand, and they're, they're, they're pausing, and they're stopping, and they're trying to make sense of it. They're wrestling with it, which is really good. They're wrestling with the message. They understand this message seems to be up for everyone, but they think maybe he's going to go teach the Greeks. And it's kind of a rhetorical thing. They think, this is, this is impossible. And Jesus basically says, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a new way to be human. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit 
whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So, Jesus cries out again. There's that word again, kradzo. It's that word to yell authoritatively, to cry out. But let's set the scene for this, all right? Let's just understand a little bit about what's going on in the Feast of Tabernacles, that week-long festival that points to the last day. The last day is the highlight. It's the greatest celebration, right? They have these booths that they're, they're camping in. It has three main ideas. It looks back. It looks back to when God provided them water and manna in the wilderness in their wanderings. It looks to the present. It looks to the present in that they're thanking God for the harvest they've just, they've just brought in and the rain that came with it. He's looking to the future. This has this idea of the coming Messiah will pour out his blessing on the nation. Zechariah says that living waters will flow from Jerusalem when the Messiah comes. So that's all wrapped up. This is all first and foremost in their minds. And then on the greatest day, the last day, this is what happens. At the beginning of the day, they have an offering for sin. A lamb is slain for the sin, for sin. And then the priest gets this golden pitcher, carafe. <laughs> he gets this golden water pitcher and he, he holds it up and everybody just is celebrating and they're excited about what's going to happen. And then he leads a procession. Now they've done this the other days, but this is the great day. And he leads a procession to the pool of Siloam and it wanders through Jerusalem and people line the sides and then they join in so that it looks something like this painting here. You see there, the priest in the middle has the picture up for everyone to see and there's, there's, there's singing and there's dancing and they're all incredibly excited about this. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I actually, um, one of the, I did a study on, on uh, the dancing that occurred in Jewish ceremonies as, as best we know it. You know, because, you know, you think about this, if you've ever been to a wedding or anything where there's dancing, you, you kind of pick out people by age groups, right? You see who's dancing in what way. And the older people are just like, doing this thing, right? Because they got no rhythm and the body's gotten old and they just kind of do that, whatever. They're just watching what the younger kids do and doing it slightly less, right? And, and, and then you have sometimes the crazy people that do the Ted Lasso dance, right? They, they jump up and down and act, act wacky. And everybody's dancing. I just want you to see in this, everyone's dancing. As the procession goes by, the people file in so the procession gets longer and longer. And they have these uh, trumpets at the beginning that are playing. You know, they're playing as they go through. <laughs> that's a trumpet, right? <laughs> they're playing as they go through the city. Because what are they doing? They're alerting everyone. In case you haven't remembered, this is the day. This is the big day. This is the final day. This is the great celebration. And the priest goes down to the pool of Siloam, right? And he dips it in. And he pulls it out, and they say there are trumpets blaring, there are, feet, are, are flutes, and everyone has gathered up what they call, what they, is kind of an idea of, of the first fruits, the, the harvest that has come in. And so they gather up different kinds of branches, and sometimes they string little jewels or different things in the branches so that as they're going, you know, it'd be like, dun, 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 They'd all shake their branch. That's stupid the way I did that. But anyways... What happens is this incredible rhythm is going. There's trumpets, there's flute, there's noisemakers that everyone's, and they're singing the Psalms. They're singing from the book of Psalms. Psalms that have, because they were meant to be sung. So it's, it's just, man, it's an incredible celebration. Everybody's in it. Everybody's happy. Everybody's excited. And he brings that. Um, and he starts heading back to the temple, and the crowd gets larger and larger and larger, and they just push into that temple. Um, years ago, uh, I went to a, a Promise Keepers, a men's thing, in, in RFK Stadium, where, the, where God's favorite team plays, or used to play, I should say, RFK Stadium, where Washington used to play. And, um, and there was 50,000 men in this stadium, and, and they started leading us in worship. And I remember at one point just stopping and looking around and going, this is a taste of heaven. 50,000 people 
all singing praises to God. It was spine tingling. I mean, it was so emotional. I wanted to laugh. I wanted to cry. I wanted to dance, but I'm, you know, one of the older guys, so I'm not supposed to. I wanted to, I, wa- I just was so excited about what was happening and how it was a life-changing experience. You can ask my wife to this day. She'll say, your life changed at, at Promise Keepers. And that's almost the only thing I remember from Promise Keepers was just that incredible worship. That's what's going on here, except it's way more than 50,000 people. And I want you to feel the emotion of the moment. And he takes that golden pitcher and he mounts up on these steps by the altar. And there's a hundred, there's so, all these people are watching. And, and he holds that pitcher up, you know, and then he pours it out on the altar as a drink offering. And there's these shouts of joy. And the priest yells out, with joy you shall draw water from the well of salvation. And the people answer back, with joy we draw water from the well of salvation. And the Talmud tells us that was the signal of the coming of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus, in the next part of this, talks about the water and the Spirit, that is not something they had never heard before. It's in their Talmud. It's in the Old Testament. So they chant that, and then the trumpets make one final just blast, and the people all at once, you can imagine, 100,000 people, they chant Psalm 118, 25. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. And just like this happens. It's interesting that word save in the Hebrew is yasha. And uh, yasha is a word that literally means physical deliverance. It means, Lord, avenge us. Lord, grant us victory. If you transliterate yasha into Greek, it's the word hosanna. Remember what they chanted when Jesus entered Jerusalem? Hosanna, Yasha, Lord, save us, avenge us, give us victory. They were looking for this king with a sword, even to that day. And so they chant, they say that all out loud, and then we're told, then it just gets quiet. Everyone, everyone sits down, and it's quiet. It's this like this time for meditation and thankfulness. And then it says... Jesus stood up and cried out loud. Oops, that's not it. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Kradzo, let anyone who is thirsty. Now, think about this in terms of what they just did. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit. So Jesus stands up. And he ties right in what they've been doing. And, he's, he, and, and he cries out. It's just a, it's an incredible moment. I mean, you think about this. There's, there's, there's all these thousands and thousands of people. They've all sat down. Whoosh, it gets quiet. And one man stands up and screams at the top of his lungs. Let anyone come to me. It says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He stands up and he yells with that authoritative voice, like saying, listen to me, listen to me. And it's very interesting. The, uh, the, the key verbs there are present imperatives. They're commands that have to be, you keep doing this. He says, you need to keep, if anyone's thirsty, keep coming. If anyone keeps being thirsty, keeps being thirsty, you keep coming, you keep drinking, you keep believing in me. What is that saying? This is a process. This life we have as Christians is a process. We don't achieve it in one, in one shot. It's a process of learning and growing, of getting thirsty and of drinking and of coming to Jesus and believing. It's a lifelong process. Jesus is putting a stake in the ground here. He's saying, this is who I am and this is what I offer. You're talking about that future day when the, when the water of deliverance will come. I'm him. It's me. I'm here for you. If you believe me, 
He's saying, look, you understand, and we talked about this before, two words for life in the Greek. I got to rehearse it just real quick. One is bios. Bios life is, sim- is, is, is just material life. It's eating and drinking. It's breathing. It's functioning. It's just being alive, existing. And then there's zoe. And zoe is a life at a different level. It's a life that has this, it has meaning and purpose. It has substance to it. It accounts for something. It means something. And Jesus said, I didn't come to bring you bios life. I came to bring you eternal zoe. So that is meaning, substance, worth, eternally. That's the kind of life I've come for you. And so here he's telling them, I give you the water your soul needs. Eternal Zoe life. This is reflected, you know, uh, in Isaiah. Um, one of the verses that, that was tied up in this um, this whole festival. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? And why spend your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. There's that double listen, so important. And eat what is good. You will delight in the richest affair. Give ear, it's coming. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. God is saying, look, I have something for you. Our life is dominated by needs. We want to be someone who's worthwhile. We want to be, do something, do something that's worthwhile. We want to be a part of something that's greater than us. We want to be a part of something that lasts. We want to do something glorious. Why? Because we were made for that. You were made for that. You were not made for bios life. That is way below your potential, what you were made for. You were made and created in the image of God to do God things, whatever they are, to impact people's lives. This is not external, it's internal. This is not natural, it's supernatural. It's not physical, it's spiritual. Blaise Pascal, who was uh, maybe one of the greatest mathematicians who've ever lived, he was a great physicist, one of the best French writers of prose. He was a philosopher, and he was a follower of God. And he wrote this. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a truer happiness. We were made for something more, he's saying, of which all that now remains is the empty print and the trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. Since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. What is he saying? He's saying there's a hole in you. There's, a, there's an ache in you. There's an emptiness in you. Only God can fill. Only God can fill. And this little passage gives us how God wants to do that. It gives us the gospel in, in, uh, in short. Basically, it's centered on a person, Jesus Christ. It's offered to all without restriction. Jesus said, if anyone, no restrictions. It's predicated on a human need. If anyone is thirsty, it demands a personal response. Let him come to me. And it invites personal participation. Let him come to me and drink and drink. He's already said this. He's told them a number of times. This is predicated on belief placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing here is he talks about, he he mentions, if you notice, the flow of the water. It's inward going outward. He's saying living water doesn't flow in. It flows out. Why? Because it's not just for you. God didn't put you on this earth to build a big house, to have a wife and kids or a husband, is whatever kid, what is it now? I think it's 1.65 
per, per couple. So, you know, to have one and a half kids, he didn't put you here for that. He didn't put you here to accrue a huge bank account. He didn't put you here to have a lot of cool stuff in a nice car. Those are all bios. He put you here for Zoe to do something that is beyond that. So the water flows outward to reach others. Here's your purpose. To reach others with the living water of life. In Psalm 1, when Jesus talks about the tree, the righteous person is like a tree planted by water, right? If you're in the desert, oftentimes on our trips to Arizona, we're out in the desert. You see a stand of green trees, that tells you something. There's water there. That's the only reason there's green trees there. Otherwise, everything else is brown. And in the desert in Israel, if you see green trees, it tells you there's water there. So he says the righteous person is like a green tree by water. What does that mean? You're a signpost. You're a signpost. You're a signpost that life is here. That green tree is a sign that there's life there. And and in Psalm 1, it's saying, we're the tree. We're a signpost. Life is here. Now, how does that happen? Well, it says, because the tree bears fruit. The tree bears fruit. Now, what happens? That, then that fruit becomes life-giving, becomes good for people to, to, to eat. So the tree has a purpose. Its purpose is to point that there's life, and its purpose is to affect people, to affect others around. You're the tree. The question is, when people see you, do they say, I think there's life there? Or do they say, that's a crabby person. That's a negative person. That person's always, right? He's told us here. He's told us we're signposts. We're supposed to have this living water flowing out of us because we have made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. We've, we've looked at his death and his burial and his resurrection, and we've decided this is true. I'm going to follow him. He deserves it. There's no halfway. We talked about this two weeks ago. There's no halfway with Jesus. You're either all in or you're not in. We have to decide to go all in. In the last part of the verse, John makes sure that the reader understands In verse 39, he says, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him would later receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, and since Jesus had not not yet been glorified. The last one, kind of just, we we come full circle to, to to the beginning. Who is this man? On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said he's the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem? Isn't that interesting? They're like, he's from Galilee. It can't be him. He has to be from Bethlehem. And Jesus is like, oh, look at my birth certificate, right? Verse 43, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one dared lay a hand on him. This is where we are today, right? Everybody's got different ideas about who Jesus is. He's a great teacher. He's a good moral man. He's God. Everybody's got ideas. And that's what's going on there. And so what we need is people who are living on this earth with living water flowing from them to point the way to Jesus, the God-man. And so I think there's one or two things. I just like to mention, we've got to wrap it up here. Is there a person you can think of in your life? Maybe this morning there's someone you can think of. I need to be living water to that person specifically. It might be somebody who's in trouble. It might be somebody who's struggling. It might be somebody who really POs you. They just kick you off all the time. And you're like, I got to be. <laughs> I got to be living water to that person. How can I do it? How can I do it? And, and this is the cool thing. Just be, start asking God, God, how can I be living water to that person? And see what happens. See what happens. See if something pops in your One day suddenly at work and something pops in your head. You're in class and, 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 and you know, Jerko sits next to you. And you're like, 
that's a Greek word, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, sits next to you and you're like, okay, God, I get the hint. You just start praying about it. Start praying about it. See, see what happens. I think the other thing, too, that happens is for some of us, sometimes we go, hey, Bob, listen, you know, I've had these times where I just felt it was just awesome and I was so excited about it. But right now it's kind of dry. I'm kind of dry. I'm not sure. I'm kind of discouraged. A little depressed about this. I'm not sure what's going on. COVID has ruined everything. Right? Well, then what you do is you start thinking to yourself, and, and in Jeremiah, he writes about this. Jeremiah, he writes about how these people are starting to drink from other cisterns. They're drinking the wrong water. They're looking for meaning and purpose from the wrong things. So ask yourselves, have I started drinking from another well? Instead of drinking the living water from the well of salvation, have I started drinking from another well? And it's leaving me dry. It's leaving me empty. So, looking inward, have I started, what, have I, what am I doing, you know, have I done this? What does it mean? Do I need to repent? Do I need to move on? What is it? And outward, because it flows outward, who can I be living water to? Who can I be an encouragement to? Who can I love? Who can I, it is not, not necessarily even with words. Who needs a hug? Who needs a shoulder to cry on? Who needs living water? How can I do that? Those are some great things to ask yourself. Father, we thank you for your word that set before us is this incredible adventure of a life that is full of meaning and purpose. A life that we can look back on at the end of our life and go, that was great. You set that before us. Lord, help us to have the courage to do it, to take the steps, the scary steps sometimes that involves following you, of giving you everything, of turning ourselves over to you and allowing you to work. And Lord, we thank you that because of Jesus and because of the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do that now. And so, Lord, help us. We believe, but help our unbelief. Because it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.